AnteUp is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But AnteUp is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. AnteUp, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's May 4th, 2018. You're listening to the best poker cast on the planet. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Han Solo Long. Yes, happy Star Wars Day, buddy. I'm surprised <laughs> you, you know- do that. Uh, no, well, yeah, I, I know stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not usually that stuff. No, and, and the only reason I know this is that like 10 years ago or something, um, actually less than that because we've been in business for 10 years now, I went out to San Francisco. Um, I was probably there on, on business, right? Mm. And I wanted to go to the uh, see the Giants play in their right, stadium. Right. And uh, an old high school friend of mine lived out there, so I already reached out to him to see if he wanted to get together and go to a game. And he's like, yeah, meet me at my um, office, and it's it's like just a couple blocks from AT and T Park. I'm like, all right, get there, and I'm and I'm looking at the roster of um, companies, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, my friend works in the same building as Twitter. <laughs> and he came down, and he's like, hey, you want to come up to my office? I'm like, sure. We get off the elevator, and he works at Twitter. I had no idea. Crazy. And it was May the fourth. And the uh, entire office has stopped working, and they're all pl- watching um, Star Wars. <laughs> and they say for battles and all kinds of other stuff, and I'm like, man, I should work for Twitter. And it's like, what, so how- what are you doing talking about Star Wars on a poker show? But, you know, there's a very famous game, card game, uh, in this Star Wars world, um, or canon, called Sabacc. Uh, and it's very similar to, like, uh, 31 where you got to get cards oh, yeah. that equal either 23 or negative 23, though, in this game, rather than positive 31 in the other game and stuff like that. It's, it's got actually kind of Mary's Poker and Blackjack together, and um, and it's p- timely this year to talk about it because, you know, the Han Solo movie's coming out soon, and that's how Han won the Millennium Falcon, Falcon from uh, Landau. Uh, right. Although... Although there were some dice integrated in their variation of the game Sabacc, which is why he has the dice hanging from the <clears throat> rearview mirror of the Falcon <laughs> or whatever. But um, not the mirror, but I'm just kidding. Around. But uh, seriously, uh, Sabacc. That, I mean, they actually, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Star Trek has, you know, Klingon that people can speak. I mean, you can play Sabacc. They can, you can make a deck, I guess, and actually play that game. Um but I don't know, it's just something, and that's been around since, obviously, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So, an old <laughs> game that we're learning about for the first time today. Which is an excellent segue into the next part of the show. Yes, perfect! Another new game that I learned on the cruise. I can't believe we forgot to talk about this uh, on the cruise show, since we had absolutely nothing to talk about. So. It's not just about you, I learned it too, you know. It's just that's not true, just I know. It's not Annie Up with Scott, it's <laughs> Annie Up with Chris and Scott. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so not only did I learn this new game we'll have to talk about, I also got reacquainted with an old game on the cruise, and now, um, with, with like, a generation of poker experience now, uh, it's a different way of looking at that game. But let's start with uh, the new game, which was Taiwanese Poker, and of course we paused for laughter on the cruise ship that all Americans do is sit around and come up with new games and attach Asian cities or countries to the names. Yes, how many more Asian countries can we insult with card games? So, I imagine what's going on in China is a bunch of people there coming up with uh, new poker games and attaching U.S. cities to them. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're playing Detroit poker over there, or Peoria poker, right? <laughs> um, but no, it's the way I, uh, you know, I love the Chinese poker, and so our dealers were like, hey, check out this new game. Uh, Jason uh, Somerville is, is making it popular. They actually did a tournament for it at the run-up series and right. not too long ago. But uh, here's how it's played. It's just like Chinese. Um, 
except uh, you have three hands. You have to make three hands, and the first one is a one-card hand that plays like Hold'em. So uh, you play the board, or you play the best five cards out of the six cards, right? Right. And then the second hand is uh, two cards, and you play it the same way. And then the last hand is four cards, but it plays like Omaha. So you have to use two of your cards and three cards on the board. Right. Just like in Chinese, uh, the hands have to be in, in um, ascending order. So the top hand has to be your worst hand. The middle hand has to be better than that hand. And then your last hand needs to be better than the last one. So I'm like, all right, well, this seems a little weird. And uh, I, I wasn't grasping the enjoyment factor of this variation, right? Right. Um, and then uh, so I started playing it, and I still wasn't kind of getting it. But uh, by the end of the cruise, I, I was picking up on some strategy that made it a little bit more interesting. But I got to say, it's not going to replace Chinese for me. Uh, I liked it because I won. Uh, it's one of those beginner's luck thing kind of thing where it's like you, you don't overthink it when you first learn stuff. You, you want to just basically get it right and not embarrass yourself. So you kind of do the safest things, and it just the board just worked out where I got hit with the deck for when I did play it. We literally played with three other players to start, and I felted three of them. And then a fourth joined, and he left down i was the only one that won money playing it everyone went through their whole stack and then had to rebuy i couldn't believe it i just kept getting hit uh and i like the game because it went back to kind of like regular chinese poker i am not a big fan of the open face so um i liked regular chinese and this was very close to it plus it you know it's kind of it's it's easier than than open face um, you know, so anyway, yeah, they put out a flop, uh, a turn in the river all at once through five cards, community board. And it's, it's just, it's so much, it's so much easier than it is open face. Open face is a lot more challenging and kind of annoying. Um, and then yeah, all the, all the fantasy more, yeah. crap and everything. I just have no desire to learn all the points and rules and letting someone else cheat by having 15 cards in their hand or whatever, 14 cards in their hand while I have to sit there and suffer. Land. It's crap. It's a crap game. <laughs> But this one, at least, you know, we're all on equal playing field, and you know, you're dealing with the flop, and you're home some sort of strategy, and I kind of liked it. Yeah, it's a good thing that you mentioned the flop because that was an important part of the game. That left out people right over probably wondering what the heck we were talking about. Yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah, I mean, normally you put like a your tiniest card at top, so you don't have run the risk of fouling. But and there is uh, luck plays a much bigger role in that too. Okay, yeah, you know, absolutely. A deuce at the top. So there's no chance of really wrecking your hand, and then two deuces come on the <laughs> on the flop, yeah. and now you got trips up top, and you have to make it up somewhere else in the bottom. So, um, but yeah, it, it was interesting. Uh, I, I think it would have been a little bit more fun. We we also admitted uh, the dealers that were teaching it uh, admitted that they didn't fully understand the rules. There are royalties in there that we weren't playing with um, that are not as big of a, a part of the game as with Chinese. Um, and then it took us a while during the cruise before we finally gave a bonus point for scooping someone. Yeah, yeah, they screwed that up early. I remember that too. They screwed it up, and, and it, was, it was our home. friend Elliot who figured it out. Our, our our good friend Elliot who does the call the floor for us. He's like, they said, okay, well you you want to surrender? He said, I'm not surrendering and giving three. When if I get scooped, I lose three. So you, you get scooped, you have to get more than three if I surrender and get whatever it was. And oh, then we yeah. finally, and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. So everyone was paying me retroactively because how many times <laughs> they fouled. It was great. They're like, oh, sorry, we got to prorate this. And they were throwing me extra chips and everything because of all the stuff they had screwed up on the last hour. And But if it wasn't for Elliot, they would have kept paying the same for a surrender and a scoop. It didn't make sense. Or a foul, I mean. Yeah, um, well, so we, we it was weird. Yeah. We eventually actually paid an extra dollar for a scoop. As it turns out, when I got home and researched the actual rules, uh, it was actually double. So you get six for a scoop, which makes a lot more sense. And that that makes the surrender option uh, more attractive than it is with four on a scoop or three, as apparently was being played for a while. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's also interesting too, that we, on the cruise, when we just, you know, waiting for games to get going, we, we play a quarter a point for Chinese for this game. You had to play a dollar a point for it to even mean anything. Um, but you could still go through a good stack. <laughs> oh yeah. And let me, let me, let me backtrack real quick to correct something. I'm sorry. It was, you got four for a scoop, but when, when they fouled, they only paid three. 
And then when they surrendered, he was like, wait, why would I... And it was surrendering, you had to pay three or something. He's like, wait, why would I surrender and pay three and then follow and pay three? He said, I would rather try to make a hand then. And, you know, so that's what it was. The surrender had to be less than the... And that's what they weren't doing. And then they weren't paying enough when they fouled or something. So it was... It was crazy, so that they but they had to correct it. So yeah, so if you surrender, you'd have to pay I think two. Yeah, it should be two, and then six if you get scooped. Is six if you get scooped. If you foul, it's three. You're paying a dollar for each, and six if you get scooped. But they were paying four at the time for scoop, so that's what it was. So yeah, so anyway, yeah, the flop, turn, and river are all dealt at once. No burns in between because it made no sense. You just dealt out five cards and did the whole board, um, and that was it. You just made your best hand with the top one card. You made your best hand with the two cards in the middle. And then you had to play the last board as Omaha, and that had to beat all the boards. So it was fun. It was it just it had less stress for me than Chinese uh, open face Chinese. Regular Chinese was fun because then you could at least you know you control. You're not going to follow your hand unless you're a moron, and you know. So I mean that that hand that game's okay. I my, in order of of the way I like them. I mean I would put open face at the bottom of the list. Uh, I'd probably put regular Chinese on top and this in the middle. Um, you're great. But that's all right. That's why we love you. Yeah, well, that's because I'm not a I'm not a degenerate. You know, <laughs> if I have to play the games, I want to at least have some some skill involved, and not I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna go for it. Oh, I followed my hand. Yeah, good. Oh, I'm in fantasy land. Yeah, you, you need fantasy land because this is all you do for a living. You gotta do something else. Get rid of this freaking you know need to go into fantasy land and royalties and all. Eh, let's just play. Oh boy, what are we gonna do with you? <laughs> All right, well, the other game I played uh, when I wasn't playing in our real games uh, was uh, Euchre, and you're from Connecticut, so you probably have no idea what Euchre is, right? Cause you know, you're don't... absolutely right, but I, I looked it up, so there's some interesting things I want to talk about as you talk about this, but I, <laughs> one thing was the pronunciation. They had a J in there. It made it sound like it was Juker. Uh, I think it, it's – I could be wrong. I'm playing off of uh, my memory from back in college when I learned this game, but I, I think the word – Progressed from a French word that okay. was like Joker, you know, the yeah, J apostrophe, yeah, yeah. And, and eventually people decided they didn't like the French, so they just a bit outside. And I could be wrong about that; could be making that completely up. So, but I, I believe that's what it was. But anyhow, um, so um, uh, you have to be from the Midwest to know what Euchre is. It's but it's so weird that you have to be from the Midwest. No one plays it anywhere else. <laughs> Unless you know somebody from the Midwest that brought it there. <laughs> so, right. But it's never caught on anywhere else as far as I can tell. But, you know, I grew up in, in Ohio, and uh, this is what you played in college. You know, we didn't play poker in college. We played Euchre, like, all the time. And uh, so I, I totally forgot about it. I hadn't played it in, in literally a generation now. <laughs> and um, some of my, our friends here in Safety Harbor uh, said, hey, you're from Ohio, right? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, Do you play Euchre? I'm like, oh, my gosh. I haven't played Euchre in forever. Uh, well, we get together once a month. Uh, we have a group to play euchre, and you guys should come then when you come back uh, from your trip. And I'm like, all right. So uh, we spent some time playing it, and then uh, you know, two of our friends, uh, the Somskis, were on the cruise, and they're from Minnesota, and played it back in college as well too. And uh, so we just uh, got reacquainted to it, and then we, of course, we went to the euchre party here, and it was a five dollars to buy in. And then uh, if you finish last in points, you got your five bucks back. So Laura got her five bucks back. <laughs> and I was pretty close to the bottom as well, too. But so I need to pick up on the Euchre strategy a little bit more. But what's interesting about it, and I'm not going to go explain the whole game. People can look it up if they want to. But um, before I was a poker player, uh, you look at it differently now as a poker player, I guess is what I'm saying, is that because part of the strategy is – um, keeping track of the cards that people play. Um, right. And so now, uh, you know, particularly playing stud for so many years now where you have to pay attention to the cards that are people, uh, people are playing to be successful at it, uh, I picked up, a, I, I found myself doing that much better now uh, than I remember myself doing it back in college. So, so poker, once again, uh, improves your life in ways that you don't even know. Yeah, I think in the past I had brought up something like that when I was about gin. And I remember when I was a kid or even when I was an adult and I played gin before I really got into poker, you know, I just thought, I'm going to play my cards and try to make my melds and go out and, you know. But then you start to think now, when you're playing stud all these years, you remember, okay, well, she didn't want that card. He didn't want that card. She didn't want that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they didn't want those because they're not making those melds. They're not making those, you know, runs or whatever. 
And it's like, oh, so now that skill totally comes into play with those card games, and it's great. I did look up Euchre a little bit, and it's very similar to like a setback or a pitch game, um, you know, with points and trump and all that. Uh, The one thing I wanted to say I thought was really funny or interesting, I thought you'd get a kick out of this, was, so they said it was invented around 1860, and it has a trump in it they said or the best bauer and they said from the german word bauer b-a-u-e-r which denotes the jack and i thought jack bauer scott would love that (laughs) that's hilarious it's true because the jacks are the bowers so uh that's interesting jack bauer and they spell it b-a-u-e-r for german the german version bauer and it's the game i guess they americans mess it all up yeah b-o-w but the german word b-a-u-e-r B a u e r. That's hilarious to me, Jack Bauer. That's probably where they got his name from. <laughs> and that's the hardest part for Laura is she just got so frustrated with it because you're uh, the so uh, let's say diamonds or Trump. The the highest card is the Jack of Diamonds, the yeah. Jack Bauer, yeah. <laughs> and the next highest card is the Jack of Hearts. The heart becomes a diamond for that time, and that gets everybody all confused. And Laura just struggled over that all the time. Oh, so man, it's such a weird game. But anyhow, yeah, if you haven't played it in a while, I'll pick it back up, all my Western listeners. And if you haven't played it at all, don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right, psychologist and best-selling author Maria Konnikova? Yeah. Well, not bad, right? Yeah. Maria Konnikova. Uh, decided to write a first-person account of learning the game of poker from the ground up for her next project, but she's having so much success at the table that the book has been delayed. Uh, getting early lessons from Eric Seidel, including watching him and other players uh, play in the high-limit rooms. Kornikova started out playing $20 tournaments at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas about a year ago and now has won a national championship and a $30,000 platinum pass at the Poker Stars PCA and is next considering a $25,000 buy-in event. <laughs> I don't know what to say about this. I, I mean, okay, cool. Yeah. So we have someone out there who is uh, apparently a prodigy at poker and she's going to write a book. Now she's not going to. Well, she's probably going to write a book eventually. I mean, probably, you know, probably still going to write now. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But now it's put on hold because she's so damn good at the game. Another person better at poker than me. Terrific. <laughs> Let's well, talk about some more it, people who are better at poker than me. I think the telling part of this is how many players have we heard that have gone on to almost instant success in poker, and and I would say within a year going from twenty dollars tournaments to twenty five thousand buy ins. Um, completely within your bankroll, right? Uh, no one's fronting the money to her, right? Um, it was pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, but it, 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 all those players that seem to rock it that quickly are because they know a player and they sat behind them and sweat their cards. And that's what she did. I mean, you know, Eric uh, Seidel, according to this article on Poker News, you know, asked the other players at the game, hey, do you mind? This uh, woman is writing a book and she wants to learn poker. Do you mind if she sits behind me and sweats my cards? And they said that was fine. And then she ended up kind of going around the table <laughs> and sweating yeah. everybody's cards eventually. Um, that seems to be the absolute best way to learn uh, poker quickly. Because there's a lot of other players that have done it that way too. You know? Yeah, the the sweating is invaluable. I think, uh, I don't know if it was, I think it was Jennifer Harmon's husband, right? Marco, I think, or they were they were talking about yes. something like that before where that they right. sweat yep. cards and they get better at it and it, it makes sense. Plus, she, you know, he, she also had Seidel teaching her as well. So in between hands, he may lean back and say, this is why I did this, or, you know, that later on that day, or in a break, or, you know, it's it's invaluable. When you That's why, like, when you get to read Super System for the first time as a moron poker player, and you don't know what you're doing, you pick up that book, and it's like he's giving you, you know, the keys to the palace, you know, or whatever, the, the slogans. Right. And it's like, because... Oh, I get it now. And then once that part of your brain opens up, you know, if you're the type of person with that kind of aptitude, then it just flourishes for you and you totally get the game. You totally understand aggression. You totally understand other people's, you know, their their habits and their tendencies. And and then, boom, you're off and running as a poker player. And then that's – she had Seidel and she's a psychologist, obviously understands how people think. You know, that couldn't hurt. And then, boom, she's off to the races, and she may never finish that book. I don't know. You never know. Oh, I think she has to. Now, it's probably a better book now, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But she's winning so much money, and he's like, what's the point? I don't need the money now. Before this, it would be a book kind of for people that are intrigued by poker but don't really play it, right? Yeah. That's probably the audience. Yeah. Um, 
now this is a book that poker players are probably going to buy, right? Because now it's not only her, you know, navigating through poker, but she obviously has success, and, and there are going to be players that want to know how she got to be that good that quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they didn't listen to the show because we just told them why. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so two other people who have done quite well in the poker world, uh, Women in Poker Hall of Fame founder Lupe Soto and pro and TV personality Maria Ho have been chosen for induction into this year's Women in Poker Hall of Fame class. They'll be inducted June 26th at the Orleans in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if we actually – said it out loud that we figured Maria was probably Maria was going to get in but we knew Lupe would probably get in this time and we were we were thinking it could be Karina too because she's been around for a while and played a while and, and has you know been basically a pro for for a long time and but you know congratulations to very deserving um I wonder sometimes do you ever wonder like people get into the hall of fame who were products of the poker boom do you think it's it's too soon uh, too soon? Well, no. I mean, the, you know, the boom was basically 2003, 2004. We're talking 15 years now. Don't worry. Yeah, I know. I just wonder, you know, and that's why sometimes they put age limits on these things. You know, they make sure the age requirements or they put, you know, uh, years playing the game requirements, stuff like that. They, they do stuff like that with other other halls. And I just wonder... You know, do you think you think? I think it's almost a self-regulating thing too, right? I think that's kind of incumbent on people who do the voting to have that have their own bar for what qualifies, right? I would think just a random poker player would love to put somebody like. I mean, go back to the Tom Dwan argument, right? That was that was a big controversy a couple years ago, you know. and I think that, that I think that's when they changed it to where you had to be 40 years old at least to get in. Yeah. Uh, maybe they didn't change it then, but I thought that was the case. But uh, but they had they went out of their way to explain that Tom Dwan has been on an amazing tear uh, at the time, but that they wanted longevity um, to be a factor. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but it's one of the reasons why I'm not in – the Hall of Fame for bowling in my local association back home because when I was like 25 and I moved here, at that point I had already acquired enough points at 25 to be in the Hall of Fame, but I wasn't old enough. And then I moved, and then by the time I was old enough to be in the Hall, they had already changed the system, and they had, and bowling gotten a lot easier after that. And so there were enough points. I don't have enough points to get in now, and I don't have enough years because I don't bowl there anymore. Um and so I thought I could have been in the Hall of Fame at 25. And so they made it so you had to be at least 40 to be in the Hall because they didn't want all these young whippersnappers coming up or gaining all this, <laughs> well, in, in my case, gaining all these points, but in her case, gaining, you know, popularity and, you know, uh, she's a great ambassador. I think she was with, with the Win, uh, the um, Windstar and, uh, right. and, you know, she's been, on, she's been a TV host and for obviously and stuff like that, and she plays poker for a living. But I just just thinking about that from a, a Hall of Fame standpoint. When you think of Hall of Famers, you think of somebody who's been around for a long time, not just fifteen or ten years. I don't know. I mean, I, she wasn't really popular until she was the last woman standing in the late in what the maybe oh nine ten maybe. You know, because I think our magazine was already running before. And I would happened. say if if her, her only claim to being in the Hall of Fame was as a player, that would have your that argument that. that not that your argument, but that the argument, the argument made, yeah. uh, would have more um, weight to it. But the fact that she's also been, you know, a TV personality and done commentary, and as you mentioned, was a you know a room ambassador as well too. She yeah. she's kind of had fingers in lots of different aspects of the poker world, in addition to just to being a phenomenal player. So yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's I guess it goes down to your definition of of what the if it fame, you know, what I mean, it's the fame thing. Like, look at Greg Raymer, right? Is he in the hall? No. But he's done everything Maria Ho has done and way more. It's true. You know what I mean? But it's also harder to get into that hall. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's That's that's what I'm and, saying. And it's not the, by standards, but I mean... The standards uh, and... The fact that, you know, you've cut out women. a lot more people. <laughs> yeah, a lot more, <laughs> more, more, more guys are playing poker than women, too, so... Um, but it's just, that's what I'm saying. It's I guess it depends on the voter's definition of the word fame. Right. You know, and then what the hall represents. Um, 
definitely definitely happy for them and uh, deserving. Just uh, just an interesting discussion to have. Certainly. So they're going to be inducted what June twenty sixth at the Orleans. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Good for them. Happy for them. Okay, join the Annie Up Fans uh, group Facebook page and post within the group to get feedback on hands, ask call the floor questions, or just discuss anything poker. Go to Facebook and search for Anti Up Fans. Atlantis Casino Resort Spa in Reno, Nevada will host an Annie Up Poker Tour Series August 16th to the 26th. More details to come, but the winner of the main event will appear on the cover of Annie Up Magazine and get a seat into the 2019 Annie Up World Championship main event. More information can be found at AnnieUpMagazine.com slash Atlantis. Each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at AnnieUpMagazine.com and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. This week's prize is a 30-minute telephone lesson and workbook from Thomas Gallagher Casino Seminars, specializing in poker odds and math at poker911.net. comes from Brett Ott. He says, I stopped listening after Black Friday years ago. Not because I didn't like it, but I couldn't play poker, so I occupied my time doing other things. Now things in my life have changed, and I've been catching up while running errands over the past year, about two a week, uh, but I've listened to about six episodes a day while visiting 20 states traveling. I'm now up to December 2016. We, the audience, usually listen to the PokerCast for leisure. What do Chris and Scott do for their leisure? And don't say bowl and drink beer. Well, I, I don't know what we're supposed to say then. <laughs> I love this email because I, I remember <laughs> Brett very back in the day. He, I think he was from Nebraska, maybe. Um, uh, I don't remember exactly where, but I, I, I remember uh, him contributing quite frequently. Yeah, so, but... and I think he won a, an Apes title back in the day. He even did like a bumper for the show. I mean, that was a while ago, and I'm like, hey, I remember you. Um, but very interesting question. You want to start? What do you do in your leisure? Wow. Well, when I'm not drinking beer, uh, <laughs> actually, I, I do all these things while I drink beer. How's That's that? what I was going to say. You must be doing <laughs> drinking beer Stole while you're doing this. <laughs> it's going to be hard for me to bowl and do what I do, but. We'll see. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question because I think uh, we're kind of an open book on this show, so I'm surprised that uh, uh, that people don't know all this stuff. But uh, certainly love the traveling uh, that I do for the show or the, the company, and then the fun stuff I do along the way. Uh, I love going to baseball games. Um, I'm a big history nut, particularly presidential history, and like studying that kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously recently I've gotten very, very involved in my community and doing volunteer work and, um, other things as well too. So that's probably the highlights. Oh, and uh, definitely, I, I forgot about this tomorrow morning. I'm on the plane to, um, uh, Baltimore for a big, uh, hair metal festival. So that's uh, right. Hair metal. So, yeah. He's basically a lead of Ford stalker. That's true. It's not really officially a stalker now. Cause I think I got the, that restraining order lifted. So no, <laughs> Rabbit fan. Uh, well, I collect antique French pewter spoons. <laughs> <laughs> no, here's the crazy thing: is that's almost believable. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you why this is almost believable because I love telling this story. Uh, we were in Vegas for I think it was like the WSOP Poker Academy uh-huh. back in the day, yeah. and it's this beautiful baby grand piano in the lobby of or the, one of the convention center halls. And I uh, come out of the bathroom, and this beautiful Pachelbel's cannon is playing. And I'm like, well, that's great. I wonder who's playing. I turn the corner, and there you are in your crappy T-shirt and shorts <laughs> playing the most beautiful music ever. And I'm like, I would never guess that. But from that point on, I never doubted any kind of thing that might came out of you. So. Uh, yeah, okay. So that's one of the things I do is uh, I play the piano. Um, so it relaxes me. I, I I taught myself how to play the piano, but I don't... And you can't read music, too. I can't read music, yeah. I, I mean, I can read music, like I know what the music is, and I know the notes. So if somebody gives me sheet music, I can learn a song. But it would take me longer than the people who know how to play, who've played their whole lives, they just look at the sheet music and it rolls off like they're typing something. Um, but uh, I, I spent a very long time uh, in my life uh, transcribing and translating uh, a lot of uh, George Winston piano solos um, because he didn't have sheet music for the longest time. And then eventually sheet music came out for his songs, and then I got all this stuff and I learned. But I, I know a lot of classical music. Uh, I know a lot of New Age 
uh, a lot of modern. I saw a lot of. I'll do some rock and roll stuff or something like that too. But basically, yeah, I, I play the piano to relax. But what I mostly do now for leisure is I'm on the slow, uh, deliberate path toward becoming a bonsai tree master. Um, so a lot of people don't know that. Um, if you're on my Facebook as a friend or something, you might know. But uh, Jeannie and I are are both members of two uh, bonsai societies, the Suncoast Bonsai Society in the Tampa area, and then, uh, or the St. Pete area, and then also the Shofu uh, Bonsai Society down in Sarasota. Um, so we we are becoming, uh, she she's more of the uh, care for the trees, and I'm more of the style of the trees, and uh, that's that's what I do pretty much every weekend, and, and in my leisure time is we, uh, we take care of uh, dozens and dozens of trees and style them and and uh you know it's a very very huge uh undertaking uh, there's a lot to it so uh that's what i'm doing it's called bonsai it's not bonsai bonsai is when what you know pilots scream when they're about to kill themselves and bonsai is the tree it's b-o-n-s-a-i and uh that's what i do well when i when i open my bonsai tree store i'm gonna call it bonsai bonsai <laughs> There's like a forum out there. Somebody their their forum is like bonsai, but it's 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 a joke on itself. It's not. But uh, yeah. So when you when I get now, I get to watch like uh, the Karate Kid and make fun of Mr. Miyagi because everything he does basically for his bonsai trees is wrong. So um, and hilarious. There are a lot of inside jokes now that no one would ever get until you actually learned the the rules of of bonsai. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's what I do. I I told Brett I wouldn't answer him. <laughs> in the email because I wanted to shock him on the show. I figured that might be pretty shocking. Well, it's one more uh, instance of how we're yin and yang here, right? Yeah. So yeah. you spend all your time growing trees, and according to the Facebook group that got me voted out of office, I spent all my time cutting down trees. So <laughs> uh, You want to kill that big, beautiful tree in the corner there. I love that tree. I, I would imagine bonsais are easier to cut down than big oaks, so <laughs> come to your house and find out. Sometimes. Oh, man, you're killing me. <laughs> Find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game and you're not sure what the proper ruling should have been, email us at podcast at com. We'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo director of poker, Elliot Schechter, tell you how he would have ruled. This week's prize is a 30-minute telephone lesson workbook from Thomas Keller Casino Seminar specializing in poker odds and math at poker911.net. Didn't we give that away already today? No. Okay. I thought, we? We, I thought I read that already somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't I read that already? Okay. All right. It's coming from Matt Eden. Oh, we did, actually. Sorry, I didn't swap yeah. it out. Sorry. Yeah, I just gave that away, so now we're giving two of those away. <laughs> I can't believe you said no. There you go. That's another thing that Scott does in his leisure, short-term memory loss. <laughs> well, we fixed another one. I just came but- back from a wonderful few days at a large poker festival here in the U.K. The casino hosting the festival had to hire in many freelance dealers and uh, floor staff in order to effectively run 30 tables <clears throat> Everything ran very smoothly, but occasionally there would be a few discrepancies in the information being given to players by different dealers. One particular example of this occurred in a hand during day one of the main event, where two players went to showdown after both checking the river. Neither wanted to show their hand, and the dealer informed the player in seat one that if the action goes check-check on the river, the first player left of the button must show first. Seat 1 did, not, did show his hand, but it objected to this rule, under the impression that it should be the last aggressor in the hand that has to show first. During the next level, after a change of dealer, a similar situation occurred between two different players, except this time the new dealer enforced the last aggressor rule, much to the annoyance of the player in Seat 1. It may be a minor issue in the grand scheme of things, but I do agree with Seat 1 that the ruling should at least be consistent. So my questions are... Is this an issue you guys have come up against in any up events, and is there a TDA rule that definitely or definitively resolves this debate? All right, so we didn't bother Elliot with this because there is, as he mentioned, a TDA rule that definitively resolves this debate. Yes. Uh, but I agree with Matt and seat number one that rulings should always be consistent. That's yes. why you call for the floor. And if it's confusing, then you should mention to the new floor that came over that that's not what the other guy mentioned, right. which I've seen that happen before, and it doesn't really ever get resolved, unfortunately. But, but uh, and I guess this is another um, opportunity to remind everybody that you can go to PokerTDA.com and download the rules. They're free. You don't have to pay for anything. You don't have to be a member or any of that stuff. Um, so it's a very – and you can download it in different formats, PDF or Microsoft Word or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you can also have it on your phone as well, too. So 
we get a lot of these call to floors that we don't pass on to Elliot that are easily answered by the TDA rules. So, you know, if people get used to downloading them and reading themselves, then they can avoid these fights at the table, <laughs> particularly in home games where there's not a floor to figure Well, out. we don't want our listeners doing that because then they send us stuff to do on the show. <laughs> so, listeners, avoid the TDA, but tell your friends. All right, so anyhow, TDA rule number 17, uh, non-all-in showdowns and showdown order. Uh, a, in a non-all-in showdown, if cards are not spontaneously tabled or discarded, the TD may enforce an order of show. The last aggressive player in the final betting round, final street, must table first. If there was no final round bet, the player who would act first in the final betting round must table first, uh, i.e. first seat left of the button in flop games, high hand showing in stud, low hand in raz, etc. And B... Uh, Non-all-in showdown is uncontested of all but one player mucks face down without tabling. The last player with live cards wins and is not required to table the cards. So you could see someone who might be haste to read that first part, A, and be confused. When they see the last aggressive player in the final betting round must table first. You're thinking, okay, well, the last aggressive player on the final betting round, the the final meaning last, the last time we bet, you know, but obviously we know what it means when you read it carefully and with a discerning eye. You know that they mean the last street because he puts in parentheses their final street. But you can see how someone could read that and be like, oh, see, it's this last aggressive player on the final betting. That last time we bet, you were aggressive. You need to show your hand. And it's, it's, they don't read it carefully or thoroughly enough. Well, you can also see how the situation happened, right? Because I always try to answer these questions when they come in without looking them up to see how well I do, yeah, right? Yeah. And I would have ruled here, in my mind, it was always the last aggressive player. Uh, I was not aware of it until I read TDA Rule 17 that if there was no betting on that final round, then it is in order. Um, so I, the the, I, the first example I think that the order probably was like me, and it has to be the aggressive, uh, the last aggressive action that happened when, any time in the hand. But the other dealer was a little bit more experienced and smarter <laughs> than we are and knew about the second part of this that said, hey, if there wasn't any action, then, then it goes in order. So... Um, Easily to see how this happens, yeah. but uh, again, uh, the better the dealer, the better the p- poker cash host, the better the ruling you get. Yeah. Well, just to be clear, I knew the rule. So I'm sorry. I don't want, I think I didn't know the rule. I knew the rule. And the reason why is because every street, every single street, the slate is wiped clean. So you can't be held accountable for what happened a street before or two streets before. It's a whole new street. Every street's a new, new clean slate. So, okay, hey, we got a new O'Malley's move. Here it comes. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another O'Malley's Move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we're playing in a standard $1-$2 No Limit Hold'em casino cash game. This table has been fairly loose passive with one maniac and one fairly solid opponent who plays the players more than the cards. The blinds post and we're under the gun with the Ace of Clubs, King of Spades. It's early-ish in the night, so we haven't seen too much action yet. In fact, this is only going to be our third hand putting chips into the pot voluntarily. We make it $15 to go, which is our standard under-the-gun raise. An MP calls and the button calls. The button is a solid player who plays the opponents more than the cards. He sits with 375 to our 225 and has built his stack up nicely throughout the night. When we sat down, he had less than $200 in front of him. There's $45 in the pot, and the flop is the king of diamonds, queen of spades, queen of clubs. This flop doesn't scare me. I think we have the best hand, but if anybody has a queen, they'll surely let us know. We make it $30 to go. The MP folds, but the button calls. There's $105 in the pot, and the turn is the jack of diamonds. I don't like being out of position here, but I still think we are ahead of a lot of hands this player could have. We do a little blocker bet of $45, and once again, our opponent calls. There's close to $200 in the pot, and the river is the tray of clubs. A total blank. So, we put $90 in the pot and have $135 left in our stack. With $200 in the pot, the only bet that makes sense is a shove. We could check, but then what's going to be the play if he shoves? Are we ahead of his range or behind it? What's the move? 
It's time for the AdvancedPokerTraining.com Hand of the Week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antiupmagazine.com. If you haven't won something from us in the past year, you'll get a free membership to Advanced Poker Training, the world's number one poker training site. And uh, this week comes from Phil, and he's got two shove situations. So we'll take them uh, one at a time, and uh, I'll just go ahead and read through everything and then uh, figure out what you would have done. Cool. All right. So uh, he starts with saying uh, this tournament is a progressive buy-in tournament. That you've seen a big multi-day tournament where a player can buy in for more money on day two and start with a somewhat average stack. However, it's a small daily tournament. During the first three levels, I bought in, got knocked out, and used my one optional add-on as rebuy. I was seated at a different table, got knocked out again, and bought in as a new player at level four at my original table. During level four and five, an elderly gentleman who was playing very loose passive became extremely loose aggressive. He was open shoving 5 to 11 big blinds, uh, about 30% of his total hands, whenever he became short stacked. As he rebuilt his stack, he returned to being loose passive. So no tells there at all. (laughs) Uh, During this time, I was pretty card dead. My image was tight passive because I was not getting the right situations. The most aggressive player at the table was three seats to my right, and he had everyone covered. He mostly took down flops with a continuation bet. Very few hands were going to showdown. Another large, possibly larger stack was moved into seat one. The short stack shover was in seat three. The aggressive big stack, whom I consider the best player at the table, was in seat six. I was in seat nine. Uh, we were playing ten-handed. Seats ten and one post up lines. Seat two folded. Seat three shoved for six big blinds. It folds to me on the button, and I look down at ace-nine offsuit with a stack of 12 big blinds. With only the blinds to left, left to act, as O'Malley says, what's the move? Well, I mean, today's game, according to Scott, because he's the only one that plays tournaments in this partnership anymore. <laughs> Uh, even up to 20 big blinds now, you're thinking about shoving. Now, I like to open shove. I don't like to be the one shoving on top of another shove with an ace-nine off. Um, but when I think about the types of hands that someone who has big bl- six big blinds shove with, it could easily be worse than ace-nine. And if it's an ace, you have a better ace than most aces out there. You only ace-ten through king beat you. So I probably would shove over the top here in this tournament because I I obviously haven't gotten the right situations all along. I'm card dead. Uh, you know, I've already bought in a couple of times or spent extra money than I need to on my first buy-in. So I'm looking to probably get some chips in my stack. So I may come over the top. if it. You know, I'm on the button, so there's only blinds left. So I feel like isolating this guy with a sh- oh, reshove probably is probably the right move and i just let it go because i'm you know i'm gonna let all the chips in the middle i mean i'm gonna shove so i'll probably shove too yeah i think i shove here as well too uh like you uh when i get short stacked and it's little big blinds we are short stack i prefer to be the first one in the pot yeah uh, show um and so ace nine is not ace nine is a hand i would shove with but it's not necessarily a hand that i like in this generally in this situation but um, obviously, from what we've determined from the short stack shover, uh, his range becomes really wide when he's short. So um, a lot of his range we have beat. Um, and then uh, we want to close out the action so the blinds don't come in. And then so we're not going to get knocked out here. Right. So um, and when we have 12 big blinds, I'm looking to chip up anyhow. So um, this is an opportunity to pick up uh, the blinds plus this this raise here and then get me out of shuffer fold mode because now I'll be up to, I don't know how many blinds there'll be now, but um, so I think this is a good opportunity for us to, to shove. I, I could also defend folding here, but I think um, the EV here is to shove. It may not get you, according to you, I mean, it may not get you out of shove mode though. If she, person's only got six big blinds and you got, so you're going to have 20 yeah, blinds so and it's over. The, I mean, 15 is kind of where I start okay, now. 15, yeah. But I mean, <clears> so I think buys you another, round or two before you had to get back in that moment. yeah yeah but you know that's again it depends on the number of people left in the tournament too an, an extra round could mean everything to you yeah, so yeah. it's an opportunity i mean i would be doing this with a with a worst hand but this is this is a decent enough hand to to take that stab down and i think all right, next one. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Here's what he did. He said, I shoved and the blinds folded. Uh, the short stack uh, shover showed king jack off suit, and I knocked him out with ace high. Yes. So, makes well, sense. Yeah. Uh, he says, this is probably the only hand that most of the table has seen and remembered me showing down. A few rounds later, the large stack in seat one seems content to wait 
for occasional big blind or big hands or special spots, which he raises effectively while the large loose aggressive stack in seat six continues to pound away at pots at around a 35% pace, creating a dicey situation for almost every hand. With the button on seat two, the aggressive big stack in seat six opens his standard two and a half times under the gun plus one, and it folds to me in seat nine with pocket jacks. I look around the table, but don't get any reads by anyone else. One way or the other, I have blinded and called, folded my way down to 13 big blinds with a couple of small wins mixed in. I'm probably the shortest stack of the table with a fairly long way to go before the bubble. Uh, with the other large stack in position and half the table left to act, what's the move? Okay, well, again, I, I don't see a problem with shoving because you're down to 13, and as Scott would do with 15, depending on the field and everything. I mean, you know, pocket jacks is a great hand to shove with, and if you take it down now, it probably gets you out of that mode again. Um, also, it's a good chance to double up, though, and to me, this could be a perfect opportunity to do the stop and go. Um, it, where, okay, so you call the raise, you have this reputation for call and checking, folding, and, and whatever, so <clears throat> unless this, unless an ace, king, or a queen comes on the flop, and even then, you may consider it, but in this case, I, I mean, it could be one of those opportunities where you call, um, flop comes, you shove, he folds, you take it down, if he calls and you have him beat still, then it's good, but this this keeps the person from seeing all five cards and mm-hmm. sucking out on you with a straight or a four card flush or even if he has an over, uh, he's turning an over or whatever. So to me, sometimes you could try that, but in this case, I probably in this situation, I probably would have shoved my jacks, said fine, I hope we're racing or better, and you take my chances. But either way, I mean, I guess the stop and go really doesn't get you more money, but it gives you an opportunity to avoid to avoid being sucked out on uh to avoid this guy from playing you off your hand um because you don't need to see all five cards and the other way around you'd want to see all five cards because you got an unpaired you know ace 10 or something but in this case you don't need to see all five cards you've got a made hand already you're trying to keep him from seeing all five so if you shove and he calls then he sees all five and you might get sucked out on if you just call and then shove, then you're guaranteed to get that money and then move on with a little bit. So I don't know. It's a chance to do the stop and go, but I would probably shove too. To me, I think this is almost exactly the same spot that we were, we were just in. Um, <clears throat> we have a hand that's good but vulnerable, um, but our opponent, even though it's a different opponent, um, the range is about the same, right? So the the, the first example, the short stack – uh, was shoving lots of hands, so his range is wide. Here, we've got a player that's not worried about getting knocked out, so his range, we can assume, is pretty wide as well, too. So um, I definitely think our jacks are good here. Uh, we're down to 13 big blinds. This is the shove spot. Um, and this is different than the ace-9, where I'd like to be the first one in. I don't really mind being the second one in with jacks. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this is a, a really good shot for us to... Um, to chip up now um you don't get a lot of high pocket pairs uh, very often so uh i'm not going to waste this one by getting cute or or, or certainly not folding so i uh, i would shove here as well too yeah yeah we usually just look for different ways to play these hands sometimes for for the, the, the listener but in this case you know stop and go may or may not work um you know you may he may just call your shove anyway with anything because at that point it's not that much money um and you don't really get a chance to double through unless he calls and then you have then you're running the risk of of losing so either way but i yeah i think scott's right that this is basically the same situation only thing that changes the character who's calling you um he's much more aggressive and he's got more he can cost you your tournament life the other guy couldn't so but i still shove i think i really do yeah well the one difference here too is that the last time we were on the button and we only had the blinds to worry about coming in here uh we still have half the table left to go and I certainly don't want more competition with my jacks. Um, yeah. To be only have one hand to beat rather than six hands. So yeah, yeah. that's true too. If you do the stop and go, someone else could also call the raise, not getting hot odds. So yeah, I think a shove's warranted probably. All right, see what he did. He says uh, I shoved and it folds it back around to seat six, ensuring a heads up pot. He tanks for a very long time, talking to me, talking to me about my possible holdings. I savored the moment and talked a little bit, trying to get a sure win with a fold. He finally calls, citing my very loose ace-nine off 
shove and shows Ace Jack. With a Barry Greenstein-esque ace on the river, I was out of the tournament. <laughs> it was too late to use my final optional add-on, uh, which I had declined at the end of level 6. Those chips could have been, put my stack back around 18 big blinds and probably would have won me this hand. However, things probably wouldn't have played out the same way leading up to that point. Uh, what do you think about using the maximum buy-ins to ensure the maximum profitability of tournaments? That's another interesting question. Yeah, I, I don't play off of it anymore, so I, it's hard for me to answer that, but I always hate spending more money that I could just earn at the table. You know what I mean? Like I, To me, I think, unless it's a a long rebuy tournament with a reasonable rebuy long period where you know you're playing with inferior players and they're going to also uh, subscribe to the theory of get as many chips as you can at your table so that you can move on later and have more chips than anybody else because you have a bunch of players at your table buying in. Unless you're playing in that situation specifically, I'm not real big on turning cash over for chips. I'd rather just, hey, if I can make it happen with this buy-in and maybe an add-on, you know, because sometimes they make the add-on so juicy so that they make sure dealers get tips that it, it's it's stupid not to do that. But for me, I, I, if it's if it's something where it's kind of borderline or if I had a really good opening two rounds or whatever levels and I'm looking at, I've already made the amount of chips that I could make from giving him another 50 bucks or whatever, then I, I don't do it. Um, I get, it really depends on the structure and how I'm running before I can really answer that question. Yeah, um, it, I think it's the same thing as, uh, would, do you buy in for the minimum in cash games or buy, buy in for the maximum? Uh, just depends on the type of play player you are and, and the amount of risk you want. So, <clears throat> Um, I, I'm comfortable with a smaller stack than other people are, so uh, I would save those bullets for when I need them. But um, other people can't play well without a big stack, so you're that tight. Go ahead and buy all in. Yeah. yeah, it depends on the player you are. depends on the players around you. depends on the structure. There's a lot of depends, of course. Uh, we should get them to sponsor our show. Um, <laughs> but in this situation, yeah, I don't, I don't play a lot of tournaments anymore. So if Scott, like Scott said, cash games... Um, I don't necessarily buy in for the max in a cash game. Neither does Scott, right? You you always buy in pretty much for the minimum. Never buy in for the max. Yeah, never buy in for the max anymore. I don't know why I don't. I used to, um, but I also don't buy in for the minimum now either. I usually, you know, if it's a one to three hundred buy in. I'll buy in for two. So okay, yeah, that's what I do. I buy in for two. Uh, I don't really have a reason for that. I just I feel more comfortable now playing that I feel like I don't need to have that. I, I can put that extra hundred at risk right away. Yeah, I feel like for but some reason that's. That's the sweet spot for us. I don't know why. I just feel like that's our sweet spot, 200, because it feels like it's enough to do damage. It's not enough to make me feel uncomfortable. It's enough to that I can sort of splash around a little bit if I need to, but if I get to the point where now it's 120 in front of me instead of 200, I can I can now play a different version of me that I like to play. So it's still like my sweet spot. But when I have, And, and then usually if I get up to like five, six, seven, eight hundred or something, then I'm a totally different player again. But uh, to start with three, it's sometimes I just... It's right in between the two players I like to be, and I don't like to play that way. So just depends. But uh, good questions and uh, sorry, good shove situations. It's weird that it happened twice in one one tournament yeah. for him. All right, I'm Chris Casenza, and I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the tables. Anti Up is a production of AntiUpMagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.